This podcast brought to you by Hope 103.2. We're looking at Jeremiah, Old Testament prophet, around 600 BC, who has a very, very costly ministry, and he pays a heavy price for speaking the word of God. The price that he pays is a double price. He's persecuted, he's now in jail for being faithful, and he's also about to go out on what we might call a sacrificial limb, buying a field under instruction at a time where it could not be a worse moment to be buying some property. But as the chapter goes on, this is what I hope you will see, that Jeremiah's purchase of some property, which is a symbol of trusting God for the future, is not a risk at all, and that God will infinitely reward him. Now, the title of the sermon this morning is Real Estate Confidence, and when I was preparing through the week, I took a break and I went out to my letterbox and I got my mail, and there was a brochure number two million uh, from the real estate agencies around about, uh, and this was the letter. Uh, what should you do first, sell or buy? If you buy first, says the brochure, well, there's the risk that you'll have to sustain two properties. But again, if you buy first, you'll know where you're going. So come and uh, let us help you to make a changeover analysis. Now, I have to tell you, friends, this is the sort of letter that does not tempt me at all. I have plenty of things that do tempt me, but the idea of juggling a couple of properties doesn't really tempt me at all. Although it is tempting to ring them and say that I would actually like to sell four of my properties and buy six more just to feel the enthusiasm on the other end of the phone. (laughs) But here is Jeremiah. He's got a real estate issue. He has somebody more wonderful than Ray White to help him make the decision. Now, Jeremiah 32 uh, has 44 verses, and yet we can cover this very simply this morning. I'm going to divide it into three parts. The first section, verses 1 to 15, is called the price of truth. The price of truth. Now, uh, this is to help you if you're a bit of a visitor today and you want to get on the train of where we're going. Jeremiah, prophet in the Old Testament, had a very tough job. He had to tell God's people that they are about to go to jail in Babylon. They are about to be taken out of the promised land and go down to Babylon to be in jail. I've uh, never been in a court when somebody has been given a life sentence. I imagine that's a very, very solemn moment. But I have been in a courtroom when somebody has been given a fixed term sentence, and that is very salutary. As you see them being led down, and you walk out of the courtroom and can go out into the free world and do what you like. Now, Jeremiah had the very difficult job of announcing on behalf of God that the people of God were about to go into a Babylonian jail for 70 years, not life, but a long time. And I can't imagine anybody who would really want Jeremiah's job because when he said to the people, Babylon will take over you, nothing happened. And he says a week later, I tell you, you've been unfaithful to the covenant. God is going to come through the Babylonian invasion and remove you from the promised land. And nothing happened. Week after month, after year, after year, after year. And I can imagine the people saying, 
you're a joke. You're a complete joke. Now the Babylonians are setting up their siege ramps on the walls of Jerusalem. And Jeremiah's got a new message and it goes like this. Don't despair. You can go off to Babylon. Of course, you'll be outside the promised land. But God is in control and he will bring the nation back to the promised land. And the people must have said, Jeremiah, you are a joke. This is impossible. Babylon is about to crush us and destroy us. So when he says the bad news, nothing happens. When he says the good news, it looks unlikely. But God gave Jeremiah a message. I will take my people out into Babylon. I will bring them back. And Jeremiah paid the price of speaking the truth. And the price that he paid was serious. I was quite... um, moved this week to read uh, in a book about C.S. Lewis, who died 51 years ago yesterday, that when he became a Christian and was really the most popular lecturer in Oxford and then Cambridge, the students absolutely loved him and they flocked to his lectures and he spoke to standing room only crowds. But when he became a Christian, his peers ignored him, ostracized him, didn't include him and overlooked him. And he paid the price of being a Christian. Now, Jeremiah pays a double price, as I say, for his faithfulness. The first in verse two is that the army of Babylon is attacking and Jeremiah is under house arrest. Why is he under house arrest? He's under house arrest because the king hates him. The king has put him under house arrest. We read in verses three to five, the king said to Jeremiah, why do you keep saying what you're saying? Why do you keep saying Babylon will come and take us over? And why do you say that I, the king, are going to be expelled as well and captured? Now, it's an amazing piece of opposition, isn't it? Because Zedekiah looks at his captive, Jeremiah, in house arrest The first part of what Jeremiah has been saying is coming true. The Babylonians are there at the walls of the city. You'd think the king would turn around and say at that point, wouldn't you? You're absolutely right. We didn't trust you one bit, but you have told the truth. The Babylonians are here. You must be telling the truth. We want to take you seriously. What will we do? But the king doesn't do that. He's still got an ounce of fight in him and he continues to fight against God and God's messenger. Do I need to tell you that there are people who you know and love, who are in the same streets as you and the same city as you and me, and they continue to fight against God even while their life falls apart. It's one of the great tragedies, isn't it? The Lord is removing the props from their life in a way to woo them back to himself. He's causing them to be restless so that they'll find their rest with him and they fight to the end. Now, the second price that Jeremiah pays is that he must make a sacrifice. And you see this in verse 6. His uncle comes to visit him in prison. Derek Kidner says in his commentary, was there ever a more insensitive prison visitor? And says to Jeremiah, in prison, I'd like you to buy my field. Uh, In the Jewish world, if you decided for one reason or another you were to sell some property it was really compulsory that it would be sold within the family. And so this uncle is coming to Jeremiah and saying, I'm selling the field. 
and I'm giving you the opportunity to buy it. Uh, we don't know why the uncle was selling the field. It may be that he was broke. More likely, he's watching the Babylonian army come in and he thinks to himself, this field is no good anymore. I'll find somebody who will buy it for me. And so Jeremiah is the person. You can just imagine this uncle coming in and saying, how'd you like to buy my field? In the back of his head, you'll have it for about 10 minutes before the Babylonians take it over. Now, Jer Jeremiah, of all people, knows that this field is a stupid thing to buy. But in verses 6 to 8, if you look there, you'll see that the Lord told him that this is what he wanted him to do. And it's not an accident that the Lord wanted him to buy the field. So Jeremiah goes ahead and he buys the field. And he does very, very careful paperwork. He makes sure that the documents are correct. He is completely above board. He's thorough. He does it with integrity. And he puts it, verse 14, into a clay jar, the sort of clay jars that house the Dead Sea Scrolls that lasted for 2,000 years because Jeremiah wants this deed to last for 70 years. Because at the end of 70 years, that deed and that property is going to be his. So he... In a way, he makes a sacrifice. It's a sacrifice of faith. Uh, I don't know whether Jeremiah was giving up all his money to buy the field, but this is perhaps what he's doing. Perhaps he's saying, I will give everything I have and I will take a field which is going to be taken over almost immediately, but I will get it back. I'll get it back because God has promised. Now, friends, I think this is deeply, deeply instructive and I hope you'll think about this through the week because Jeremiah, you see, is putting his faith into action. Why would he buy the field? One, because God tells him to do it. Two, because it's a sign of confidence in God's promises. Three, because the field is a symbol of the promised land. He'll get the field back, they'll get the land back. Four, it's a model, an example, a wonderful example to the other believers and even the skeptics. And fifth, he is acting as if the future is real. Can you believe that? He's acting as if the future is real. Now just imagine if we had people in our church, I'm being cynical, I'm being rude to you, I'm being objectionable. Just imagine if we had people in our church who thought the future was real. Imagine, friends, if there was a real God. Wouldn't that be great? I mean, we know there isn't a real God, but just imagine there was a real God and he made promises and he kept his promises and he asked us to trust him with his promises and the proof of trusting him in the short term is that you would make sacrifices and you would get persecuted, maybe mocked, maybe jailed. And we'd probably see those people in our church, wouldn't we? We'd probably see them do strange things as they put their faith into action. Some of them, some of us, would give up our sinful habits because we'd stop saying to ourselves, there's only this world, so I've got to get everything now. Some of us would give up sinful relationships 
We might stop building bigger houses and barns as if this was what life was all about. We'd stop investing in temporary causes that are going to have no eternal value. We'd stop taking our cue from the world. We'd actually feel the cost of losing in the present instead of losing nothing in the present. Something that made a person who was a believer or an unbeliever say, why would you do that? But we don't see much of this, do we? We see Christians who call themselves Christians but seem to walk like non-Christians and enter into relationships with non-Christians, and I mean partner relationships. We see people hoard like there's no tomorrow. We see people who can never stop indulging themselves. And we have to ask ourselves, don't we, every now and again, whether there really is a God who makes promises that the future is what our investment should be primarily in. I've been very convicted about this, uh, partly by reading a book that somebody gave me from the congregation about the, mini the mission which is being done by many people in third world countries to third world friends. Um, people who in their own countries could easily rise up the ladder, be very wealthy and successful and leave, but decide to stay and live and work among their poor people in order to bring the gospel to them. And uh, one of them gives a summary of what is required if you want to move into ministry with third world people. And it goes like this. We begin by invading the house of the imaginary person or family and we strip it of its furniture. Everything goes, the beds, the chairs, the tables, the television sets and the lamps. We leave the family with a few old blankets, a kitchen table, a wooden chair. Along with the bureaus go the clothes. Each member of the family may keep in his wardrobe his oldest suit or dress, a shirt or blouse. We'll permit a pair of shoes for the head of the family, but none for wife or children. We move to the kitchen. The appliances have already been taken out, so we turn to the cupboards. The box of matches may stay, a small bag of flour, some sugar, some salt, a few mouldy potatoes already in the garbage can must be rescued for they will provide much of tonight's meal. We'll leave a handful of onions and a dish of dried beans and all the rest we'll take away. The meat, the fresh vegetables, the canned goods, the biscuits and the candy. Now we've stripped the house, the bathroom has been dismantled, the running water has been shut off, the electric wires taken out. Next we take away the house. The family will move to the tool shed. Communications must go next. No more newspapers, magazines, books. Not that they're missed, since we must take away the family's literacy as well. Instead, in our shantytown, we will allow one radio. Now government services go. No more postmen, no more firemen. There's a school, but it's three miles away and consists of two classrooms. There are, of course, no hospitals or doctors nearby. The nearest clinic is 10 miles away and is tended by a midwife. It can be reached by bicycle if the family has a bicycle. Finally, money. We'll allow the family a cash hoard of $5. Now, I'm not completely stupid. I'm not pretending that when the Lord puts you in the place where he's put you, he expects you to live like that. What I'm saying to you is, what do we make of people who could live like we are living, but are living like this for the sake of the gospel 
and are working with thousands of people who are hungry for the gospel and are seeing thousands of them respond to the gospel and wouldn't swap places with us for all the money in the world. That's the challenge, isn't it? And we therefore have to interpret this issue, the price of truth, and ask the question, what is it that indicates that we believe the promises of God? You might like to think that out together over the morning tea. You might like to think it out over the family lunch today. You might like to think it out through the week. What would indicate that I believe the promises of God? That's the challenge. Now, the second little section in Jeremiah is where he suddenly prays, verses 16 to 25. We didn't read these verses, but it is a beautiful prayer. And Jeremiah, in this prayer, asks for nothing. You might expect him to say, God, I've just gone out on a limb and I've bought a field. Please, please, please make it work. And he doesn't. He says in his prayer, I thank you, God, for being a God of great power, great love, great faithfulness, who keeps his promises. And therefore, friends, this is the vital thing about the prayer in verses 16 to 25, what I've called a prayer of trust. Jeremiah is speaking the truth of God and therefore has nothing to worry about. It's as if he's saying, Lord, I've gone out on a limb and the limb is you and I'm just measuring the limb which is you and the limb is 20 metres wide. There's no risk at all. He says in verse 17, you made the heavens and the earth. Well, if I can give up a field and you made the heavens and the earth, that's not a really big problem, is it? Verse 18, you love and you punish To take you seriously is a blessing. To ignore you is to be stupid and run into trouble. Verse 20, you brought us from Egypt to the promised land. You can do anything. You got us here. You can certainly bring us back. Verse 24, now the siege ramps are upon us because you've kept your promises, even though the people have not listened to me. You kept your promises. I believe the promises. Nobody else believes the promises. I believe the promises. And verse 25, You've told me to buy a field. Implication, I could not be in better hands. You always have kept your promises. You always will keep your promises. Now, somebody has said, and I found this very searching, that our prayers are our creeds. And what what that means is you can work out what somebody believes by what they pray so that if you were to sneak into the area outside an open window where I'm praying, you'd learn a lot about what I believe. And if I was to sneak up beside you as you pray, I'd learn a lot about what you believe. And this prayer of Jeremiah shows that he is a great believer. Oh God, you're powerful, you're loving, you're just, you're sovereign, you're good, you're faithful. I trust you. He's a theologian with reality. I was um, humbled as I prepared this this week because I thought just about how my prayers are so babyish. You know, sometimes you see a child have a tantrum because the DVD that they've put in doesn't work fast enough. Sometimes an adult has a tantrum because the DVD they've put in doesn't work fast enough. And you just sort of think, well, that's just childish. Is it not true that a lot of our praying is just childish? It's so microscopic. It's so self-centered. It's so God is my butler. 
Now, Jeremiah takes time at the end of this deal, having made a very small sacrifice to reflect on a very great, great, great God. And we need the word of God, don't we? We need to be saved from our selfishness. That's why we need to hear the word of God. It changes our brain. Sometimes good books do that. This book I was reading about mission in India is written by a guy called K.P. Yohannan. He runs something called Gospel to Asia. He says the average Western Christian gives 50 cents a week to world mission. Across the world, average Western Christian, 50 cents a week. Then he says they will spend 200 times that on a meal that evening, very often. When he goes to speak at a church, he says, I'm given a check. The check is not worth the dinner that I've been speaking at. He says in some parts of the world he receives letters from poor people who say we're trying to work out how to increase our giving and he received a letter from a lady who said I've decided to cut off my phone so that I can give my proper support to world mission. Now I'm only saying to you this is a challenge to us to think about whether we believe the promises. We don't have any more information than these other people. Well behind this prayer lies this very great God and Jeremiah models his beliefs. Third and last thing this morning is the promise of treasure, verses 32, 26 to 44, the promise of treasure. We've looked at the price of truth, and then we've looked at the prayer of trust, and now we come to the promise of treasure, verses 26 to 44. Now, you probably know I've been sharing this sermon series out with some of the other very able pastors at St. Thomas's to our great benefit Um, And I've generally given them the best chapters because that's the sort of guy I am. Um, And I thought to myself, I'll take chapter 32. It's some weird chapter about real estate. I discover as I get to the end of chapter 32 that there is a verse which John Piper says is unbeatable in the Bible. He says, I can't imagine any greater verse, and we'll get to it in a minute, but just stay with me. So Jeremiah has bought the field. He trusts God. He's prayed to God. He praises God. And now the Lord speaks from verse 26 to the end of the chapter. For 18 verses, the Lord speaks and he says, yes, I am the Lord. And I will cause Babylon to come in and take over. And I'll do this because the people deserve it. He says in verse 30, they've continued to be idolatrous. They've turned their back on me. There's been sin at every level, in every place, by every person. And some of it has been detestable, even becoming sacrifice of children. Then he says, and this is where the whole speech of the Lord turns, verse 37, but I will gather them and I will be their God and I will give them singleness of heart. There'll be no more double-mindedness. There'll be no more divided heart. And this is the verse John Piper says he's unbeatable. Verse 40, I will never stop doing good to them. I will inspire them so they don't turn away. Verse 41, I love to do this, says the Lord. I will certainly do this, says the Lord. I will do it and I'll do it with all my heart and I'll do it with all my soul. And that, friends, is unstoppable. That's unstoppable. So you see what the Lord says. Yes, I am the Lord and I'm going to send these people into the Babylonian exile, but I will bring them back. And my long-term plan, says the Lord, is that I'm going to give them singleness of heart. They will not turn away, and I love to do this. It's absolutely wonderful. Absolutely wonderful. Undeserved grace. 
Now, if we ask the question, when will this happen, it's helpful to think about three horizons. Uh, the first horizon is that when the people come back from Babylon, they were very humble, very chastened, and keen to be faithful, but still very sinful. So in one sense, this promise to bring them back and to give them a new transformation, it operates in a superficial way when they come back from Babylon. The second horizon is the coming of the Lord Jesus. This is where all of the Bible points. And it's in the person of the Lord Jesus that we're going to meet somebody who really does have singleness of mind and heart. Unbelievable. No division in his mind or heart. His singleness of mind and heart is perfect. Never turns away to the left or the right. And of course, he pays a price which is way beyond anything that anyone will pay because he's going to pay the price of dying for those who have a double mind and a double heart. And he's going to take on himself the cost and the penalty for that double mind and that double heart and give to the person who receives the treatment of God as if they had a single mind and a single heart. That's what will be done through the cross. So Jeremiah, in a way, is a preview, a faint preview. He pays a price. He's quite faithful. He trusts God. He looks for the inheritance. But this is ultimately fulfilled by Jesus. He pays the real cost. He has the real singleness of mind and heart. He really has the inheritance. This is Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane saying, I don't want to pay this price. It's dreadful, but I will pay the price and endures the cross because of the joy that is to come. The third horizon, of course, is that those who put their trust in Christ become new, not perfect, immediately new. Their heart begins to change. They become more and more single of mind and heart, but look forward to the final day where face to face with Christ, we shall be like him and we will have an absolutely sinless mind and heart. It's unbelievable, but that's what the Bible promises. So that's what God is talking about in this remarkable section. And I want to just close by saying this to you. There's some comfort this morning and there's some challenge. I heard a man say recently, and I thought this was deeply disturbing, that for many people today, their Christianity is like air conditioning. It's just something that makes their journey a little more pleasant. That, I think, is a terrible, terrible accusation. If anybody watches me and my Christianity comes across as air conditioning, I'm deeply ashamed, and I hope you'll tell me, and I hope I'll repent. The trouble is there are many people, and their Christianity is not making life more pleasant. It's making life dreadful. And they don't, as I say, have any more information than we have. But they believe their beliefs and they doubt their doubts. And we need to ask the Lord to save us from the world that we are addicted to and believe the promises of the next. Now, this is a very comforting passage because you see how the chapter goes. Jeremiah pays a small price, but it's on the backdrop of a God who's utterly faithful and will reward beyond anything which has been laid down. Do you remember when uh, the disciple Peter said to Jesus, Lord, we've left everything. It's been such a costly thing for us. 
And Jesus turns around and says, no, you've received masses more in the present and eternal life in the future. So don't talk to me about losing. You've gained. The comfort of this chapter is that the God who we pay small, small, small prices to follow is utterly faithful and rewards sensationally. The challenge, therefore, the huge challenge, is whether there is anything in our lives which goes beyond cheap talk and an easy creed, the sort of behaviour that really costs us nothing because it's absolutely costless. And the question is whether we really do believe in a God who can be trusted and who will be trusted and whether that trust will be seen. This is the God who we claim to believe in, chapter 32, verse 41. I'll rejoice in doing them good and will assuredly plant them in the land with all my heart and with all my soul. Now, friends, can you respond to that God? Can I respond to that God appropriately? Let's pray. Our Father, we're very thankful to you for this discerning and searching chapter. We thank you for reminding us that you're a God of great faithfulness and power, that you will keep your promises. You have, you will. We ask that you will forgive us. We are ashamed of our unbelief, our doubt, our disobedience, our worldliness, our carelessness, our compromise, our double-mindedness. We ask our Heavenly Father that you will hear our prayer together, that in your mercy you would forgive us and lead us into wise and faithful paths where you are really honoured and our trust is seen. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.